You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. This is the WFHB Local News for Tuesday, July 26th, 2022. Later in the program, WFHB correspondent Tilly Robinson reports on the redistricting of six Bloomington City Council districts. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, WFHB sports correspondent Anyi Afuako provides a rundown on local, state, and global news stories in the WFHB Sports News Briefing. More following today's feature, but first, your local headlines. On July 18th, at the Bloomington Utility Service Board meeting, Conservation and Energy Resource Manager Nolan Hendon gave an update on the city's solar panels. Um, just wanted to give a brief update on the solar panels based on questions asked last meeting. Um, so just a um, quick uh, reminder, we have four solar arrays throughout our CBU facilities. We have one at Dillman, one at Monroe, one at our Southeast Booster, and one at our service center here. Um, <clears throat> And they have all been performing as they were expected to when built, so we've, pretty, we've been producing what we've expected to. There are some caveats to that. Um, with Dillman, as you all know, there's been a lot of construction happening there, so there's been some planned outages, as well as some not planned outages, which you all have addressed as a board, I believe, a few times. Um, so that means that the arrays haven't always been on and producing and connected to the grid when that's happened. So that's... Um, something that we, we shouldn't expect going forward. Um, and then at Monroe, it's been producing for the most part ever since it's been online, since I think 2020, the full facility went online. Um, there has been some communications issues, which on the part that actually communicates to us what it's producing. Um, and since that facility uses so much energy, none of it's what we're producing doesn't go back to the grid. It all stays in our facility. So it's hard for us to actually see what we're producing <clears throat> unless we have that meter working. So when it has been working, um, like I said, it's been doing as expected, but we don't have full year's worth of data because of that. Um, so those are a few of the details. I guess a high point with this building, um, it produced 76% of all the electricity we used in 2021. Um, and we did just update our outdoor lighting last year during that time, so that might go up some. Um, so that's exciting to see we're, we're close to a net zero on site here um, with this building. So those are the main points. If there's any other questions, I'd be happy to answer them. Next, Director of Utilities Vic Kelson updated the board on the utility department's upcoming work. First one is um, uh, July, 9th, or July 29th. That's a week from Friday. Uh, there will be a celebration of 50 years of the relationship between the Parks and Rec Department and utilities uh, regarding lake, the management of Lake Griffey. They will have been managing the lake since 1971, so, or since 1972, so it's 50 years. So there will be a celebration there at Lake Griffey. I'll make sure that you uh, all get all the details as that firms up. Uh, the second thing is, and I know, uh, I know Kirk White knows about this, we 
uh, are working with uh, new faculty at IU uh, to look into doing surveillance for viruses, not just SARS-CoV-2, but also uh, some other viruses appear to be possible. Uh, we are organizing a meeting with uh, the mayor's office, uh, Indiana University, Indi IU, IU Health. Um, we've invited the county, the South Central uh, Sewer District, and there was one more uh, organization to participate in, in some discussions about what's possible for, oh, IU, <laughs> sorry, um, and to, uh, uh, to look at what's possible in terms of community surveillance for uh, viruses in our wastewater uh, going forward. So we're really excited about that, and it's a great opportunity for us, I think. Kelson also warned that they are seeing an increase in COVID-19 virus in the wastewater and an increase in toxic algae in the water supply. The, uh, the virus counts uh, in our wastewater continue to be in about the same range from about 600 to 1,200, kind of wobbling around in there. Uh, we haven't had a string of non-detects again. Uh, and anecdotally, uh, we've had a number of cases here at CBU in the last couple of weeks. So uh, it's, uh, it's certainly spreading rapidly right now through the community. So everyone should, be, should just continue to be uh, vigilant about it. Um, another microbiological thing is that uh, with the unusually hot summer, and it's been very, very hot, uh, the algal counts in the raw water at Monroe are as high as we've ever seen them. Um, and uh, they has been, we have had some detections of algal toxins in the raw water, but our treatment process has been set up to, uh, to ensure that as, uh, as much as possible those are removed. Uh, we have not had any hits of algal toxins in the finished water. Um, what, uh, the, the other thing that happens is in really hot weather, if we go a long time without any rain, uh, it's pretty common for us to get taste and odor chemicals. Uh, there's a chemical called geosmin that you know, a small percentage of people can pick up at a concentration, I think it's seven micrograms per liter. Uh, we hit just about seven once, but then we got the rain and it went back down. So uh, we're, we're staying on alert for algal, for algal toxins and uh, taste and odor chemicals, uh, but uh, it's, it's been a difficult summer this year and it doesn't look like it's gonna get much easier. The next utility service board meeting will be held on August 1st. During public comment at the Bloomington City Council Committee of the whole meeting on July 20th, a Bloomington resident, David Wolf Bender, and student at Indiana University spoke out against anti-Semitism in the community. Uh, just after the city council let out for its summer recess, um, I came across this in my newsfeed. Uh, it's an article from the IDS, IU's campus newspaper. The story details a Bloomington-based coffee business that is using anti-Semitic logos and language uh, in their promotion, uh, in their promotional material. Um, so why am I here tonight? Um, I am here because of conversations I often have with fellow residents. Um, I am told uh, by a lot of my friends that while there may be pockets of hate across our state, I, I am told that somehow it doesn't exist uh, here in Bloomington. Uh, and I'm here tonight to say that uh, hatred and anti-Semitism does exist here in Bloomington, and I'm here to say that it hurts. Um, since in the past two years, since I came to IU, I've seen this firsthand. I've seen a long string 
of anti-Semitic incidents uh, two years ago and one of my first, on first month on campus, uh, a story came out about an anti-Semitic slur being uh, thrown at the IU Hillel building during uh, a Jewish community service. Uh, then uh, a mezuzah belonging to a Jewish student was torn down from a dorm room door. Then, in December 2021, swastikas showed up all across the city, one appearing and co one coinciding uh, on the first night of Hanukkah. Then, uh, comments on a website attacking Jewish student organizations at IU, and now a Bloomington business creating a logo that looks mysteriously similar uh, to a swastika. I myself have witnessed and faced anti-Semitism in this community. Implicit and explicit, it hurts. And while I do not and will not speak for all Jews at IU, uh, I can tell you that it makes me personally feel unsafe and it makes me worried. And yet still, I love this city, and one of the many reasons I chose to attend IU was because of its thriving, large Jewish community, one of the largest among colleges in the country. Hillel International estimates that there are, there are nearly 4,500 undergraduate and graduate Jewish students at IU. It's a significant proportion of our city, and it's a significant proportion of the IU community. So what can we do? Our leaders can speak up, we can condemn these incidents, we can report these incidents, we can have conversations with our friends and families to discuss the consequences of anti-Semitism and hatred, we can adopt the working IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, and we can live up to the highest of Jewish values. We can educate our kids. We can show them that this type of hatred is wrong, or any hatred for that matter, is wrong. Because in Judaism, education is not just a value, it's a responsibility. I'm not here tonight to ask for one specific policy from this council or the city leadership. One policy cannot change this. I'm here to call attention to this issue because in August, IU's 4,500 Jewish students, I'm finishing up, uh, in, will return to campus, and IU's Hillel, Chabad, and other Jewish student organizations, along with city temples and organizations, will organize High Holy Day events and services. They deserve to be safe. They need to be safe, and our city needs to ensure their safety because safety for all, regardless, uh, of who they are or their religious affiliation is not just a value for our city, uh, it's a responsibility. Thank you. The council debated Peerless Development's request for the city to vacate the alley behind the Johnson Creamery building. Corporation Council Beth Kate summarized the negotiations that have taken place so far. Uh, when council left for recess, uh, where this was left was that you would come back at this meeting and that the city and Peerless would continue to try to negotiate a uh, contribution toward public art in exchange for the right-of-way vacation. Uh, we have not been able to reach a deal on that. Uh, the city uh, had asked for, uh, the last thing that we asked for was $200,000 over two years. And what Peerless came back with was $75,000 after operating for six months at 85% plus occupancy in their new building. Uh, and so uh, we think that the asset is worth more than that. We think that the city should uh, get a reasonable contribution toward what would be a valuable public art installation. Uh, in exchange for the right of way. And uh, so we haven't been able to reach a deal on that. Kate explained that Peerless recently offered a deal to put in a new alley in exchange for the right of way of the current alley where they would like to build their apartment complex. My understanding is that, uh, and I've, I've seen, I think, an email that went to you all as well uh, shortly before this meeting from Peerless that has proposed 
moving the right-of-way effectively, uh, having the council vacate the current right-of-way, and then uh, if council wishes, having them dedicate a new right-of-way that I believe from a uh, look at the map would be in the Johnson Creamery Historic District. Um, I have various thoughts on that. Peerless Development founder Michael Cordaro said that the new alley would be just outside of the historic district. So yeah, after having um, discussions with the city and, and ultimately city staff and not being able to come to uh, an agreement on an amount that this project can, uh, can really afford, uh, and then having conversations with council members individually. Um, the idea came about of re relocating the alley and we've been uh, sort of trying to figure out what the process of that would look like. Um, and where we've shown and drawn is just outside of the historic district. So it, it basically would fall just north of the uh, historic district. Um, and we think that it's an appropriate place for the alley, given the, the plans, the existing building and the plans for the proposed building. Uh, it would actually be a, um, a usable right of way, uh, once again, where right now it is not. Um, so we would be happy to uh, move forward with uh, some sort of a plan to basically relocate uh, the, lo the location of this alley um, in similar size and shape. Um, and one way that I've been told that that could be done is uh, a vote on vacating this evening and then uh, we move forward. Um, again, I, I sort of said, if the council and the city or whoever wants to weigh in on that um, would like this, this alley and like to, to keep it and place it in the service, uh, we're happy to dedicate it um, and work through with the Board of Public Works and the Planning Commission uh, to ultimately replat uh, the property and dedicate the new parcel um, back to the city. The council decided that they did not have enough time to consider Peerless' new offer and tabled the vote until their next meeting. The next council meeting will be held on August 3rd. The City of Bloomington Citizens Redistricting Advisory Commission invites Bloomington residents to design and submit maps to determine the boundaries of six Bloomington City Council districts. For more, we turn to WFHB correspondent Tilly Robinson. The City of Bloomington is inviting residents to help design a new map of City Council districts. The redistricting process will determine district boundaries during the next two election cycles. The City Council is responsible for Bloomington's property and finances. There are six council members who represent individual geographic districts, plus three at-large council members who are elected by all Bloomington voters. This year, the city is using a new process to draw districts. Members of the public can create their own maps. Stay tuned to find out how. Then those maps will be reviewed by a group called the Citizens Redistricting Advisory Commission, which can also draw its own maps. The commission has five members, two Democrats, 
two Republicans, and one Independent. Two of those members, one Democrat and one Republican, are Indiana University students. Each member was appointed by a coin flip between two qualified candidates. Council Administrator and Attorney Stephen Lucas is the Commission's staff liaison. He explained the Commission's job at its organizational meeting on July 11th. This Commission is really tasked with reviewing those proposals, making sure they meet the different criteria, picking the best one, and then sending that recommendation to the City Council. So, how do the Commission and the Council decide what the best map is? There are a few criteria. Four of those come from state law. At the meeting, Lucas explained that districts should be contiguous. So the first factor, first criteria is contiguousness, which simply means a district can't be divided into two or more pieces by another district. Districts should also be reasonably compact. They should contain roughly equal population. In Bloomington, that's a little over 13,000 people. And they usually should not cross the boundaries of either county precincts or U.S. Census blocks. The city ordinance that created the new redistricting process also set out a few guidelines. This commission should avoid recommending districts that split various communities of interest. Those include school districts, historical districts, neighborhoods, and townships. The city also encourages drawing council districts that promote political competition. The Citizens Redistricting Advisory Commission will make its recommendation to the council in September. The council has until November 1st to act on the recommended map. If it rejects the commission's recommendation, the council has until December 1st to return the process to the commission with a list of reasons. The commission can then submit a revised map for consideration. The new redistricting process represents a significant change from 2012, the last time city officials redrew council districts. Former city clerk Regina Moore helped facilitate the map-drawing process in 2012. She explained how the council chose a redistricting committee. It was suggested that rather than have the council committee be made up of council members who would want to have a certain neighborhood or something like that, that just the three at-large council members be the committee. And committee meetings could be attended by anybody who wanted to. And as it ended up, I think most of the council members, the district council members, also attended these committees because everyone was interested in the process. The redistricting committee drew their own maps and considered input from the public. They submitted a map proposal to the full city council, which the council approved on December 19, 2012. Steve Volan has been a city council member since 2004. In 2012, it was a map he drew that the redistricting committee selected. But he thinks now it's time for a change. I should be the last council member who can brag that he drew a redistricting map. That's why he introduced the ordinance which established the Citizens Redistricting Advisory Commission. I knew that the League of Women Voters had model uh, legislative language for a statewide redistricting commission, and I simply tried to adapt that to a local context. The local plan was already scaled down from the proposal that the League of Women Voters and Common Cause Indiana had envisioned for the state legislature. But selecting a commission still wasn't easy. The council had originally intended to appoint nine members, 
but cut that down to five. Moore expressed concern that the conditions for serving on the commission are still too restrictive. I think there are lots of people who could serve on the commission fairly, but they wouldn't qualify for one or two reasons. And one of them would be donating more than a certain amount of money to a political campaign. Fullen acknowledged that the council had removed some requirements they found to be too onerous at the local level. But he stood by the decision to make ineligible anyone who had contributed over $2,000 to political candidates in the past five years. If we're trying to inspire faith in the system and the process, we should be taking the money and that kind of influence out as much as possible. Fullen expressed regret that the redistricting process will still, in the end, fall to the city council. The model legislation that the League of Women Voters developed for the state would have turned the process over to the Indiana Supreme Court if the legislature failed to approve a map drawn by the Citizens Commission. But the city council can't delegate its authority to courts. At the local level, we don't have the authority to bind ourselves to the courts. So unless the state passed a law saying that a redistricting commission on a local level has to, their maps have to be accepted or it goes to court, we can't make ourselves send it to a judge. Despite these bumps in the road, Volan feels that the new redistricting process will benefit local democracy. Council members shouldn't be choosing their voters. Voters should be choosing their council member. And Moore is excited about the chance to bring people, especially young people, into the political process. I love to tell the story about the intern that was in our office at the time, looking in on some of the meetings and what was going on. And he had been taking some political science classes and local policy classes. And he took home a whole bunch of maps of the city with the precinct lines drawn on them. And it came back on Monday morning with a half dozen, a dozen maps. And he said it was the most fun he'd ever had. If you want to try your hand at making a map of your own, you can visit Bloomington dot in dot gov slash council slash redistricting. Submissions are due before August 9th. The Citizens Redistricting Advisory Commission will meet for the second time on July 25th. For WFHB, I'm Tilly Robinson. Up next, WFHB sports correspondent Anye Afuaku provides a rundown on local, state, and global news stories in the WFHB sports news briefing. From WFHB, this is your sports news briefing. I'm Onyi Afwako. Brittany Griner's lawyers confirmed on Thursday, July 7th, that the two-time Olympic gold medalist and WNBA superstar had pled guilty to drug charges in a Russian court near Moscow. Griner, whom the State Department has classified as wrongfully detained, faces up to 10 years in prison if convicted of drug charges. Reiner was arrested at a Moscow airport in February after Russian officials said they found cannabis oil in her luggage. 
Griner, who plays in Russia during the WNBA offseason, has since been held on drug smuggling charges. Her trial began July 1st. Since the start of her trial, the general manager for UMMC Ekaterinburg, the Russian professional basketball team Griner played for during the WNBA offseason, has testified on behalf of her character. Her lawyer, Maria Blagovolina, also testified that Griner is allowed to use CBD oil because it is recommended by a doctor with permission issued on behalf of the Arizona Department of Health. Greg Ratliff announced Wednesday, July 21st via Instagram that he will be leaving the Edgewood Mustangs wrestling program that he has been at the helm of since 2011 to become a teacher and assistant athletic director at Bloomington South. The catalyst for the realignment of the Panthers athletic department was when track and cross country coach Larry Williams retired from teaching. That opened the door for Neil Doyle to give up his assistant AD spot and be a full-time teacher, opening his schedule for family commitments. Edgewood is now looking for a new head coach as well as a health and PE teacher. Scott Greer, a former head coach at Indiana University who spent the latter part of his career as both a head coach and an assistant for Bloomington South Tennis, passed away on July 11th after losing a lengthy battle with multiple forms of cancer. According to sources, Greer was a very private man who chose to keep his illness a secret. Affectionately named Bones by one of his former players, Greer survived both his wives, losing Pat to cancer in 1999 and Maggie to medical conditions in 2020. Greer was South's head coach for much of the 1990s before moving to an assistant role. He even stayed on to volunteer after announcing his retirement. No details on Greer's burial and funeral plans have been made public by the family. That's all for your sports news briefing. For WFHB, I'm Onyi Afwako. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noel Herhusky Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Tilly Robinson. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Cynthia Roberts. And I'm Benedict Jones. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at wfhb.org. Stay tuned for Planetary Radio, a program that explores our solar system and beyond. 
coming up next on WFHB Community Radio. WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 